Hello and welcome to episode 65 of We Don't Talk About The Weather. Political discussion from the outside may just look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk about this week's news and politics. Yeah. Actually, this week's news and politics yeah. this time. We've been away. Mostly. Well, yeah. I've been away. Yeah. I went to the top of a mountain, sat at the top of a mountain amongst the clouds, contemplated the life of me, um, <laughs> the meaning of existence, what's the point of materialism and capitalism, and then came back and bought a fight stick. <laughs> just bought a fight stick while I was up there, then raced it home from North Wales. You were just on the top of that rock, and you just got to the point where you were floating mm. above it, and then like you started looking on Amazon. Well, yeah, I was just floating above a rock, and then it just hit me like a bolt of lightning. There is a ceiling to my abilities in fighting games, <laughs> as long as I use a D-pad. <laughs> um... <laughs> yeah, it may not have seemed like we had a week off, but through the magic of uh, recording two episodes at once, um, it was fair, it, it was fuck up pretty much up. seamless. I did fuck yeah, up. yeah, we had computer trouble, so it wasn't up till what was it up Friday, Saturday? Um, but yeah, so yeah, that was. So if you could all think of us having two episodes this week rather than like you know one episode a week, that'd be good. Thanks. <laughs> um, so. Hmm. This hmm. week, mm-hmm. you wanted to talk about the stuff that's been going on the last couple of days about Jamie Oliver oh, Jamie and Oliver cultural appropriation. Jamie Oliver pissed me off. Well, it's a weird thing. It's yeah, because it does actually funnel into our other bit that we're going to talk about this week mm-hmm. and about you know the misrepresenting re- misrepresenting something that's happened to have a meaning, meaningless debate, have a whinge, yeah, have a bit of a moan. Um, so Jamie Oliver, if you haven't seen. Yeah, released a packet microwave packet rice called jerk rice. Yeah, and it has this big stupid face on it, and it's called I think it's like called Jamie Oliver's punchy jerk rice. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dawn Butler got very got annoyed. Um, yeah. I don't know how annoyed, but she did get pissed off and yeah. pointed out that you know it's not jerk because to jerk, if something is jerk, it has to have. All spice, Scotch bonnet, and it has to be a meat. Yes, it has to be chicken, pork, or fish. Yeah, that is the, the yeah. And yeah. the thing is, I'm pretty certain the Jamaican government actually has rules on it to protect jerk. Oh, really? Like um, pork pies and Cornish pasties, uh, cheddar cheese, and that, and Cornish pasties and prosecco and champagne and yeah. Those are European rules. They're actually yeah, yeah. So, like lots of things. Yeah, like lots yeah. of countries have things with their national dish. Mm-hmm. Um. And then you get people like James Cleverly yep. um, wading in, as he is wont to do, mm-hmm. and saying things, and like a lot of people saying the same thing. And I've got it just here, because I saved it, because it annoyed me. Yeah, so James Cleverly wades in, mm-hmm. and James Cleverly is, I think he's an MP for somewhere in Essex. Yeah, he is, I think, yeah. Yeah, he feels very much like an Essex Tory yeah. Um, been thinking about the Dawn Butler attack on Jamie Oliver's jerk chicken. First off, it wasn't an attack. She just said, "This is dumb." Second off, it wasn't jerk chicken. Yeah, exactly. That's the most important thing. It wasn't yeah. jerk chicken, which is part of the reason why she was annoyed. Um, it demonstrates a deep misunderstanding of this of the country she hopes to govern. The UK has always been a magpie nation, thieving nation. We have adopted elements of other cultures as we have as um as and when we interact with them. Can't get them. <laughs> um. 
The English language has elements of earlier language from all across Europe, a distillation of the language of our invaders, and more latterly, the countries we invaded and traded with. Awesome analogy, bro. Hmm. It's exactly the same thing. Here we go. Cul-de-sac, schadenfreude, pyjamas, a la carte, bungalow, mm. prima donna, faux pas, post... Blah, blah, blah. Um, and we are even more culturally promiscuous with food. Fish and chips is a Jewish-Portuguese-American fusion. Indian and Chinese food aren't even thought of as foreign food by most people. You still call them Indian and Chinese food. We didn't Tea call... from China, coffee from Africa, and national oh, tea. Tea, no tea. Tea, nothing wrong with tea. Nothing wrong with tea at all. The British love of tea has never caused a single bit of suffering. It not even never... a single tear it shed has... <laughs> over the acquisition of tea. Look, it has never caused a single war. It caused two wars. <laughs> all right? The end of dynastic China. <laughs> yes. <laughs> also, I look, the fucking analogy with language is mm. stupid because you cannot choose uh, what language you're brought up in no. and things like that. Um, also, uh, faux pas is still a French word. Yeah. We didn't bring it over and call it fox part and say, no, it's the fox same. Pass. Fox pass. <laughs> no, it's the same. Yeah. Um, well, the problem is, there's, there's an issue, like cultural appropriation of food. Yes. Um, and a lot of people like saying things like, always oh, saying that I can't eat foreign food. Yeah. I can't cook foreign food. Which and she didn't is, say. No, she didn't. And, peop- and, peop- and didn't intend. There was no even no, like subtext of no, that. No. And the people who talk about um, the cultural appropriation of food and the, there's a problem and you know problems of it, don't don't say that. Mm. I'm allowed to cook Korean food. Yeah. It would be wrong for me to open a Korean restaurant. Well, it would be and be the chef of my Korean restaurant. No, I don't, a range even, of Korean food. Well, no, even then, a, I don't no, think because as as a white man in Britain, it's easier for me to get bank loans and all that kind of stuff from my I position of power. Be, I would disagree that it would be wrong. What would be what would be different is when you name things and when you combine things like that, especially for profit and claim them as your own, hmm. um, that would be a certain level of cultural appropriation. Yeah. Like she's not even saying he can't, um, he can't make well, the jerk rice because she, there's nothing she can do about it. There's nothing anyone in, can do about it. He had jerk chicken it. in an older recipe book. Yeah. That he did with Lee And I mean, people pointed out that, you know, it didn't have um, scotch bonnet, it didn't have jalapenos, so if anything... It did have jalapenos. Sorry, it had jalapenos rather than uh, scotch bonnet Mm. in it. And so he's twisting a recipe and using the word. Mm. Now, is there... I imagine Dawn Butler has a realistic grasp of the fact that there's nothing that she's ever going to be able to do about it. Mm. But one thing she can do as an MP is raise the issue of, is this actually the same thing? I mean, if anything, she was commenting on the quality of what is attached to the word jerk Mm. as much as she was criticizing any kind of cultural appropriation. But some of the fucking like hot takes from the smart, smart, smug dullards Mm. across the internet. It's like, Please don't like, and this was a great one because by proclaiming your love for uh, like jerk food or curry mm. or like Jamaican food, curry, anything like that, you manage to have a go at like radical notions of cultural appropriation mm. at the same time as portraying yourself as super woke. Oh, yeah, I saw an awful, it's lot, like, oh, God. Saw an awful lot of white people pretending they like Aki. Yeah. It's like, oh, I can't... Please don't take our jerk chicken away. Uh, Then I'll have to eat potatoes and beans. And then, like, 4,000 replies going, Mm. you can't have potatoes, they're from Ireland. An actual sentence I saw (laughs) typed out. (laughs) Potatoes aren't from fucking Ireland, you... 
you dumbasses. But it wouldn't matter if they were. Hmm. Like, it, I think the reaction speaks more to a great desire to put that kind of critique back in its box mm. sometimes um I, there was even um there were people saying like um referring to it as like tumblr 15 year old argument mm. Mm. which is dumb and the arguments so there's people polit- who haven't been on tumblr the political arguments on tumblr from 15 year olds is better than the political arguments i was around when i was 15 mm-hmm. um and back when tumblr was actually a thing mm. because it's not really i think people are abandoning it in droves so okay. it's not a very good platform Lily's still on it is she? Oh yeah. well, uh, I, I, there was something the other day. It's it's like its user base is is going down quite a bit because it's mm. not very useful for writing. It's not that useful for photos. It's not got a good ordering anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I saw that there was a lot of. Um, shouldn't she be more worried about like the crime in London and all that kind of stuff? And it's like interesting. She did, she did just. Um, it was just a tweet, and then she carried on with her day. It yeah. is cap- people are capable of being annoyed at multiple things. People are capable of caring about more than one thing. In fact, I would say it's a prerequisite for an MP. And also, if you're like, say you're on the train into work mm. as an MP, mm. and you're on the train, and you're looking in the metro, and there's an advert with Jamie Oliver's stupid fucking face with yeah. his punchy jerk rice, mm. and you're like, oh, that's fucking stupid. And then you send the tweet, and then you carry on with your day. Yeah. I don't... <sighs> exactly. It's a... It's a it's... We we covered quite a lot of this in the in the yeah. uh, the food episode a couple of weeks ago. I think but there's just a it, what surprised me is that this wasn't from this wasn't from the kind of below the line Telegraph commentators. These were the I fucking love science. Mm-hmm. I go to see Robin Ince in stand up. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it was yeah. it was those people, and it's like this. It's like you know, if you just like had your open mind you not only would you be able to read what she was saying but also realize the ramifications and the and the like limitations she put on it mm. she wasn't telling you not to eat anything yeah, in I fact saw... if anything she was encouraging you to eat the proper stuff yeah um i saw jonathan pie waiting or the, the oh the, awesome the, the actor Fucking who brilliant. controls the jonathan pie twitter account <laughs> what if but yeah, so that, that was that was a thing. That we'll be getting more into him later. Yeah, yeah. Um, that man's a piece of work. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So we were going to do. <laughs> we were talking about what we were going to do this episode, mm-hmm. as we usually do. And mm-hmm. uh, you said, "Give me a time capsule of all the news that's happened since I've been away yeah. for a week, uh, entirely contactable by internet, yeah, but and phone." I made a good point of trying not to be on Twitter that much. Oh um, yeah, yeah. I, I was, was quite, here. I was here. I was at home, and I did that. <laughs> I was quite enjoying being, you know, just blissfully above the clouds. It was nice. <laughs> the only really interesting thing mm-hmm. I think this week has been Wreathgate. Mm-hmm. I hate the word mm-hmm. already, but I hate everything with a gate on the end. Yeah, it's stupid, lazy. But anyway, yeah. so the Jeremy Corbyn um, laying a wreath for the people who castrated Jews at Munich. That was the thing. It was actually it? for the it was actually for the Roman soldiers who massacred the uh, people at Messina. Uh, it's a terrible scene. I don't know how he's going to recover from this. Was it a was it a small monument to every atrocity that's ever happened to a single Jewish, but to any Jewish person ever in the history it's, of the world? Um, it's weird. That's a weird thing to have. So the background on the story. Yeah. So in 2014, mm-hmm. when he was still a backbench MP. He attended a conference in Tunis organised by the Centre for Strategic Studies for North Africa. It was called the International Conference on Monitoring the Palestinian Political and Legal Situation in the Light of Israeli Aggression. Mm-hmm. 
awesome. <laughs> like what a horrendously complicated thing to call it. Yeah. Um, one of its aims was to uh, bring together uh, the two main Palestinian factions, Hamas from the Gaza Strip and Fatah from uh, the West Bank. Um, but Dan Hodges says they're the same. Oh, yeah, they are the same. That's why they need bringing together. Yeah. That's why they fought a civil war, because mm. they're the same. <laughs> um, other attendees included former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark, uh, Osama Hamdan, the foreign representative of Hamas, as well as Conservative peer Lord Sheikh and Liberal Democrat Lord Phillips. So, during the trip, he took an up an invitation to join a delegation paying respects to those killed in a 1985 Israeli bombing of the PLO headquarters in Tunis. Photographs suggest that a wreath was laid at the base of a large statue erected in memory of the victims and that Mr Corbyn was next to the memorial, mostly in the background, not holding a wreath. The delegation then seems to have moved on to a cemetery uh, three miles away, which houses a monument to those killed in the attack. Uh, that cemetery also includes graves of the people of people accused of having links to the 1972 Munich massacre um, when the Black so. September group uh, snuck into the um, Israeli Olympic team's uh, camp hmm. and uh, murdered them and a German police officer. Black works really well as a prefix to any kind of political group to make it sound super cool. Yeah, there's the black. Like even the Shriners sound shit, but then the Black Shriners. That's pretty. That's cool. a band that I would go see. <laughs> I think that's a band I have seen. The Black Hand. That's mm. a uh, Gavrilo Princip, the one who assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand. That's pretty cool. <coughs> mm. Even um, the Lib Dems. The Black Dems. Yeah. The Black Democrats. That sounds. The Black. <laughs> black Democracy. Yeah, that sounds like that sounds like a thing that that will be being birthed on YouTube in the next couple of years. Like some oh, kind of God. a cad leader that'll of the black like, democracy movement. That'll be like when they read something really intricate and they start going all arch and neo-reactionary. You mean that they'll read Nietzsche? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Become suicidal Lib Dems. Like most Lib Dems. Um, so, amidst all the other anti-Semitism uh, stuff flinging around, which obviously we're again not going to really talk about because there's not much to talk about, mm. um... This has been used to paint Jeremy Corbyn as being unacceptable to uh, Jewish people generally mm -hmm. and the British people because he deals with terrorists. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of problems that I have with the actual like function of this. He was attending a memorial for the PLO, mm. right? Including former terrorists who, mm. are, who are buried there. Now, the PLO were a violent, uh, were a violent uh, like uh, resistance group in in Palestine. They planned terrorist atrocities, killed civilians, all that kind of thing. They were also the ones who the UN and indeed Israel recognised as the kind of representative body mm. for the Palestinians. So by going there, it's not. It's not out of the ordinary. It's not. Mm. It's not. And that attack on the headquarters was condemned by everyone in the uh, world. Yeah, it was condemned by uh, Margaret Thatcher, I believe. Yeah, mm. it was condemned by the UN. It was mm. by, I think it was condemned by America as well, mm. which is you know weird for America because well they attacked another sovereign nation. Yeah, and just didn't care. But mm. you know, it's two thousand eighteen. That's America's job. It's two thousand eighteen now. <laughs> no one cares. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, one of the particular ones who's buried in that cemetery, uh, Salah Khalaf, who was the second in command of Fatah. Mm. PLO was like a large umbrella organisation made up of a lot of different parties, of which Fatah was the main one. That's the one that Arafat mm. was in charge of. Um, Salah Khalaf is commonly credited with um, uh, arming and planning the Black September Massacre, but he's also the person who brought the PLO to the negotiating table in 93 for like the Camp David Accords, the Oslo Accord, mm. those those kind of meetings. He was the mm. one who pushed Arafat into to the negotiating table. Mm. Um, so it kind of comes across a bit, rings a bit untrue that he's someone who cannot, who who a politician can't meet with like can't mm. commemorate or can't go to end like can't can't at all be associated with it aside from the fact that there were tories and lib dems there as well mm. um the notion that there's no way back after committing what was an atrocity like it was is, a fucking general, crime these kind of things when like the Munich massacre. mps go over for these kind of things mm. it is signed off on by the government like the government mm. in general you know goes yeah sure it's not like when that yeah. it's not like when um the former tory a foreign minister went to have secret meetings on her holiday when Pretty Patel went. To oh, Pretty Patel, the international development. Yeah. I don't like then. bringing. I don't like other oh, years international development. I'm not like um, attacking Israel here. It's just like I get like she doing the thing of, um, you know, she went met, meeting people in secret about the government saying okay. Yeah, um, it's not like that. But I mean, that was that was not entirely what they were doing. That they, it, it wasn't that it was a breach of protocol. It was that somehow the PLO. Yeah. After all these years, after mm-hmm. all these decades of Fatah being the like, when Hamas won the election in I think it was two thousand and six, um, Israel refused to recognise them as the legitimate government in Gaza and preferred to keep dealing with Fatah, mm. who are the people who they're celebrating here. So even yeah. Israel recognises them as the legitimate kind of governing authority of the West Bank and the Palestinian territories. Mm. Um, but the ability that people seem to show, like there's Dan Hodges and Robert Peston said something like, oh, that's um, a piece of "Yeah, Robert Peston put up a thing of uh, in Parliament, Corbyn condemning Reagan visiting the Bitburg Cemetery in Germany, uh, in Germany, maybe Czechoslovakia, which um, houses SS soldiers. Mm. SS soldiers are buried there, and he condemned Reagan for going to the cemetery and mm. saying there are a lot of brave people buried here, something like that." You know, and salute the Wehrmacht. And like, who do you think he is, Tacky? <laughs> it's just the idea that you can rhetorically so easily slip between the SS mm. and the PLO mm. and you can shift Fatah from being the ones who compared to Hamas you have to listen to mm. and the PLO are the ones that they can suddenly be transformed into like completely out of out, like outre terrorists There's a very, in the blink of an eye it's a very either Either they're not very smart people doing it, or there's a very low opinion of their readers mm. that they did think that, you know all brown people are the same. Mm. Which I think it's a little from column A, a little from column B. Yeah, because Dan Hodges, yeah, I'm pretty certain he just doesn't <laughs> really understand what's going on most of the time. It's like a mule with a spinning wheel. Yes. <laughs> so a lot of the opinions I've seen seem based around the idea that like Corbyn has a problem with picking the wrong side or mm. or picking sides at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the implication being that in international conflicts, like picking a side, is a moral or a political error, and what's like that, it's got me thinking about it quite a lot. The notion of like internet when it comes to international politics, there's one mm. side and that's our side, yeah. and you should only ever be on our side, and you should only ever talk to our people, and never discuss anything with anyone ever in the history ever. But given the notion of like for an exa- as an example, like the mess around Syria. Mm. 
Um, I'm not even talking about the mess in Syria. I'm talking about the mess around how people argue about Syria. So mm. on one hand, you've got like, uh, like you know, like the centrists going, Assad's a monster. We must invade immediately mm. and put you know the Al Nusra Front in power mm. because they're the moderates, even mm. though they're not. They're Al Qaeda. Um, but at the same time, you will also have super far left tankies kind of saying. Um, anybody who supports like uh, the white helmets or the Free Syrian Army or anything like that, yeah. then they're jihadis. Mm. And it's like, well, no, that's also not true. And mm. I'm not trying to. I'm trying to plot a course, but not land in the middle because largely, I think, like with something like Syria, I think Assad probably has to stay in order to avoid a much, much, much worse outcome, which is monstrous. That's a monstrous decision that you have to take. But luckily, I only have to take it in speech. I don't mm. have to take it in. In reality, so like, there's an element of whenever you're talking about foreign conflicts, you really only ever doing it by proxy. Mm. We don't live in a war situation. We never have mm. lived in a war situation. We don't even live really under a great deal of kind of direct police oppression. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. We get asked to be, we get asked to be moved on, or you mm. know, they stop us because you know they think we got weed or something but it's not the same thing no you know so you can never fully invite of course you can never fully invest yourself in it but i don't feel like i have a problem with looking at a situation and and like as a socialist or a lefty or whatever and roughly working out where the justice is Hmm. do you know what i mean like i don't have it might it will be difficult it would be difficult to do is what i'm saying Hmm. but if i did have enough information to go on i i don't i don't think if it came down to it i would have a problem Hmm. like like ira versus the british state i don't Hmm. really have a a, a problem with working out where the injustice is there Hmm. and like one thing that corbyn has done for quite a lot of his life is tried to put put an end to having to have those sides or at least those sides being armed yeah and in conflict um but there seems to be a problem with Corbyn altogether where they don't like the idea of him picking sides, which is kind of a hidden way of telling him to align himself with British state goals. Yeah. It's very much like, I mean, if you look at like uh, Sy- uh, Syria and uh, Yemen and Saudi, Saudi Arabia, yeah. there's not many people who wouldn't say that Saudi Arabia is the aggressor in that situation and that the just thing would be for them to, at the very least, stop. Well, yeah, but it's that. But then, but then you can tell by the conditioning of the rest of the discourse around that argument that John Woodcock stands out when he says the Saudis are bringing. (laughs) You know, the Saudis are just defending themselves. Yeah, they are. They are always defending themselves. Saudis. Um, like there's no, there's no ever, and, and the idea as well that like by picking the side that does, and it seems the most. It seems that by picking the side that does the more obvious violence, which Mm. is usually, frankly, it's the oppressed side. Mm. They're not the ones who have the clean drones. They're not Mm. the ones who have the airstrikes. Mm. They're the ones who have to, you know, go into towns and Mm. shoot them up. Yeah. Or, you know, actually be on the ground and Mm. be bombed and, you know, do things in in retaliation. Mm. There's no good or just war. Even the justest kind of, the most justified resistance or um like like ethically like ethic like there's no righteousness in there even the most ethically justified resistance is going to do some very very unethical things Mm. in resistance but you know that's 
again, pretty easy to say when you're not in a war situation. Exactly. Um, and like, there was a lot of things coming out of saying like, oh well, you know, Mandela, he he saw the he saw that non-violence was the thing that that achieved everything. And Jeremy Corbyn, by you know, going to this Hamas mm. Fatah event, was choosing violence. And I saw I saw that um, people were bringing up Gandhi again because you know that. Gandhi was just on the side. Yeah. He just sat there. Mm. Had everything happen, everything good happened. I love There was no love, context. There was no Second World War. There was no, you know, burgeoning Indian resistance movement. Luckily, no one died in partition either. So. Liberal history is delightful. Um, yeah, they hold up kind of Mandela or Gandhi mm. or like Martin Luther King as examples of what yeah. you can do when you embrace nonviolence. But there's just such a... It's interesting to see how the whitewashing goes on with them after their struggle is won. Hmm. And then there's an also a, a kind of, I don't know another way to put this, but blackwashing hmm. of groups when they've not become useful. I suppose it's what like kind of anti-imperialists do term as like, like global imperialism. That's the ability of, of global imperialism to paint particular struggles in a bad light hmm. and others in a in a good light do you yeah. know what i mean yeah um it goes on for groups that like it's not de- even dependent on like the extent or the severity of their violence but on their position within the structure of the global system hmm. you know whether they're fighting the british states allies or whether they're not you know it's hmm. it's a it's a really it's a really odd one and like the idea also that any of us kind of can get away from violence hmm. in these kind of situations seems pretty ahistorical. Yeah. You know, like it, you're judging people in a situation for taking violent options. You're judging them for taking those in situations that not only have you not had to, but when maybe your ancestors had to, well, it's a... they would have done the same thing. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. how you, that's how a country came to come to be in its current situation. You know? Yeah. There's def. There's definite looking at situations differently if your side isn't involved. Yeah. And when there's like there's statues to Bodicea. Hmm. There's a kind of holier than thou like attitude of people where they say, well, my particular political conglomeration only came about through nonviolence. Mm. And it's like, motherfucker, you live in the UK. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's talk about Orgreave. Let's talk about um the miners' strike. Let's talk about the Highland clearances. Let's mm. talk about the famine. Let's talk about the um, uh, Merthyr uprising. Let's talk oh. about Mother of Parliaments, longest yeah. democracy. Yeah. Oh, it's like oh yeah, it was never violent then, and it's 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 not even a partisan thing at that point. It's mm. just a fucking ahistorical stupidity. The idea that they think that political solutions can just are always separate from violence because politics is the opposite to violence. So yes, yeah, definitely. I, that's not even a problem I have with the whole picking sides thing. That's just a problem I have with their their notion of how things how things work, mm. how things came to be. You know, mm. um, and what gets glorified like now, mm. um, what gets glorified and what gets denounced is set up by a usually racist discourse, mm. and within a set of usually racist power relations. Mm. So you know you can potentially say that like the IRA can come to the negotiating table but Hamas can't hmm. they, they are not to be allowed they are beyond yeah. the pale Martin McGuinness yeah um, David Cameron went to um, Martin McGuinness's funeral yeah is that the, that's the same thing hmm. it is the same thing unless you accept that somehow 
Palestinian uh, Arabs hmm. are less worthy of being considered as thinking, functioning human beings who make their own choices and have their own agency. And that agency at certain points will include violence because that's what they're suffering hmm. under. Yeah. I I don't get it. And there was a really good... Um, Richard Seymour had a, a thing he wrote on his Patreon um, this week um, and talking about how particularly the word terrorism, hmm. uh, it functions to denote a group whose violence is unjustified mm-hmm. or otherwise like illegitimate mm-hmm. um, while absolving states, absolving allied groups from the same kind of mm-hmm. uh, censure. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's been thrown around, uh, thrown around so much with um, like Corbyn as if, as if somehow associating with these people like, like he likes violence. Mm. He wishes violence. And it's only ever, it's never broken down like that. It's never said, well, clearly he's the head of uh, an Islamic sect <laughs> that uh, wishes to take over the UK and Israel with uh, AKs and massacre people en masse. It's never said like that, but with, it's implicated, in, indicated like that. With like the increase in things like, things like rebel media and that kind of stuff and like Bannon wanting to have more stuff here. Yeah. Do you reckon they're going to accuse him of being a secret Muslim? Hmm. He does eat a lot of falafel. You see, they don't need to because for they them, just say he hangs proximity. Around, he's a useful idiot. They say the useful idiot thing. Yeah, they say the useful idiot thing, but they, for them, proximity is enough because the people they're communicating to have no proximity with Muslims, and so can be a scary other. And in that situation where you're dividing people out into the pure and the impure, hmm. um contact with the impure mm. like it, i mean let's let's face it it's like it's racist it's racist theory oh, yeah. it's contact with the other with the racial other mm. somehow makes you less pure mm. like not even if you were like um like like doing interracial marriage or anything like that or having kids or whatever even contact with it like changes you yeah. that's that's the root of that kind of like right wing thing and it's it's strange that even like liberal commentators don't exactly say that, but they kind of gesture in that direction when Definitely. they deploy words like Jeremy Corbyn went to a terrorist funeral. Yeah. You know? And yeah, ultimately like, yeah. Um look at all it's like look at all those like messy guys in camo. They're not they're not in uniforms. Mm. They mm. they're not they don't have airstrikes. They don't have clean don't civilian casualty free airstrikes. They don't have those clean, beautiful cut lines of the Wehrmacht. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, a systematic attempt to ignore the like the dynamics and interests and politics of groups just because they use violence and ignoring the fact that like you know violence is a factor throughout history. Mm. It's an and it's an attempt to put kind of certain groups, certain tagged groups, all under the rubric of like extremist or yeah. paramilitary or all those scare words. Yeah, and it's just amazing how like the liberals who grew up in the like the Bush era. Yeah. And kind of were the ones who railed on about, you know, oh, he's got a good and evil, he's got a Manichaean worldview mm. of good and evil. They seem really ready to to take that rhetoric on mm. of good guys and bad guys when it comes to Corbyn. Yeah. Not a reaction I have seen. Like if Miliband did that, they'd be, oh, he really fucked up now as if it was like a procedural error. Mm. Whereas Corbyn somehow, because he's a little more open and a little more kind of principled, mm. it's seen as tainting his, it seems, it's seen to go to his core mm. somehow. Yeah. And it's a really unfair 
not only is it wrong, it's a particular thing that they only do with Corbin. Mm. It is weird mm. and horrible. And it, it is just, it pollutes and poisons all of it. Yeah. Unlike Margaret Hodge saying that having a disciplinary hearing for herself is very much like her father being chased away by the Nazis. Oh. That doesn't poison or pollute anything. God. I mean, there was something that David Schneider said, hmm. um, and he he was kind of... He wasn't defending what she said, because he said it's obviously ludicrous. Hmm. But You have to say that, because it is ludicrous. It is ludicrous. Um, he did say that, like, well, you know, she was the child of Holocaust survivors, so reaching like the fear of the fear of that happening again is an ever present thing and i can understand that but again it's something that has not come about until corbin nobody had that happened under ed miliband mm. old red ed mm. that would still not have gone as far as it has now mm. and you have to identify another factor behind that and i'd have to say it's probably because of his principled anti-imperialism anti-imperialism is something that is absolutely not going to be allowed Mm. it's the thing that they're going to come for first if Corbyn gets elected it's the thing that they are going to come for first for instance that Paul Mason article um, I actually have a little bit of it here Um, uh, it was an article he did during the week which was what should Corbynism 2.0 look like and he slipped it in there it wasn't quite as prominent as he as uh, I thought it was going to be but yeah he does his like put away all the fancy pants foreign policies for now let's just focus on ending austerity and it's like yeah that's a good thing but without anti-imperialism this is going to go on and on mm. and on yeah. like it's probably the main like mould and model that we operate under. I don't particularly want an imperialist socialist state. No. Because that's a bad thing. Mm. Well, because, I mean, it would be the the major victory of this century. Mm. If, I, I, don't get me wrong, I have no idea what it would even look like because mm. we're so inured to the idea that we have this military, we have this defence industry, we have these particular foreign policy goals all in alignment, all feeding off each other mm. and feeding and bouncing across borders. You know, weaponry gets tested out in Israel that comes back to the US and the West as like police, mm. police oppression gear, that that kind of mm. thing. That's 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 kind of part of what that imperialism is in the modern in the modern sense and i just don't even know what it would look like to not have it but if if he could successfully decouple the military in a way that prevents him uh, like foreign adventures mm. and all that kind of stuff i not ranking it in priority but i think it will in the long term it would be more important yeah it'd be great than ending austerity for generalized suffering yeah I, it's like that um, thing again it's not person, again it's not a priority it's, so we can that, care about yeah, two things at exactly once, but it's like that thing that the progress guy was saying about um you know there were more people lifted out of poverty than died in than those people who died mm. in iraq and it's like mm. i would like that not to have to be a rubric that we have to live under yeah that's not the measuring stick yeah you know mm. maybe mm. but yeah yeah so on to our second topic this week and it's something I'm, I've am i been super interested in mm. for years. Uh, it's about living Marxism. Mm-hmm. Now, living Marxism is, was um, a magazine 
of the Revolutionary Communist Party, mm-hmm. a kind of Trotskyite splinter group from uh, the International Socialists, later to be known as the SWP, who took a really interesting turn, a group of mainly academics, students then academics, um, who took a really interesting turn. Like They've got a really interesting history. I first heard of them when um, when I was in university, I was assigned a book called uh, Mythical Past, Elusive Future by a man called Frank Ferretti. He's a sociology professor I at the University of Kent. Yep. Yep. You might have heard him on LBC talking you, bullshit. <laughs> yep. You may have heard him on a lot of places. He gets on, I don't think he ever gets on Question Time, but he gets on Newsnight. He gets on Radio 4 every now and again. Mm. He's very much that kind of guy. Mm. Proper talking head. Um, as I got more into kind of formal... Like, like formal left-wing politics and theory and stuff. I read his book, uh, The Soviet Union Demystified, which is a pretty, I now realise, is a kind of a pretty standard Trotskyist um, like explanation of why the Soviet Union was as it was. Hmm. So, you know, it's like the czarist bureaucrat class didn't disappear when the Bolsheviks took power and they basically imposed their own priorities of production and efficiency on the Soviet Union, they called it state capitalism, and that presided over a degenerated worker state, mm-hmm. which then led to the Stalinist purges when it didn't work out. Um, which does kind of beg the question: uh, Are you saying that Stalin didn't purge enough? <laughs> you yes. know, are you Perfect. saying that Lenin didn't purge enough? Yeah, you know, didn't get rid of all those old bureaucrats who <laughs> then came back and started uh, started fucking around. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, so Frank Ferretti was the founder and the chairman of the Revolutionary Communist Party of Great Britain. Um, it used to be described, it was the result of a split, um, because of course it was, mm. um, from something called the Revolutionary Communist Group, which itself was a split from the International Socialists, who are now called the SWP. Mm. Um, it argued that the working class needed to... It was disgusted with the other groups, because, again, of course it was. <laughs> yeah. um, the working class needed to retain its independence from the state and bourgeois kind of institutions and forces in order to guarantee its own survival and eventual control of society. Hmm. Right? Like so, the Fremen. Uh, a little bit, yeah. yeah. They were described as the SWP with hair gel. <laughs> Because apparently, like, there's, <laughs> apparently, like the you know the SWP were like the student hippie mm. left, and they were more like post punk, mm-hmm. like short hair, maybe gelled back. Yeah. They're starting to lean into synths. Yeah. They're starting to lean into electronic music. They're not quite there yet, but you know, but they almost. Um, they took a kind of a, a number of positions to kind of yeah get this independent working class. No, going nowhere near labour, going nowhere near the unions. Nothing like that. Um, they wanted a rejection of controls and immigration, things like free abortion, decriminalisation of homosexuality, uh, anti-racist street action, mm-hmm. and support for the IRA. So far, so good. Mm-hmm. Um, they were in favour of a national ballot in the miners' strike, which really kind of pissed all the other groups off, mm. because the issue in the miners' strike was that a national ballot hadn't been held, mm. and uh they were striking anyway, which made it an illegal strike and yeah. all that kind of thing. But they were very much, that wasn't the tone on the revolutionary left, which mm. is kind of a weird thing and kind of set a kind of characteristic uh, tone for them for later on. Mm. They also opposed sanctions on South Africa because they thought it was wrong to rely on governments that supported apartheid to oppose apartheid and that workers should take direct action and block South African imports at the street, at the docks. Uh-huh. Again, 
I get it, but also there's something wrong there, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Resolutely refusing to support uh, government like sanctions yeah. on apartheid because it's the wrong way to stop apartheid. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. It's very troughing if it's not perfect. Uh, yeah. It's not They're, perfect in my view. They were very much trying to out-radicalise, like distinguish themselves by out-radicaling their parent groups, hmm. basically. Distinguishing um, themselves by trying to outdo other groups, that's the thing that stays with them for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it sounds, in any, other, in any kind of sane group, and hmm. we're dealing with British Trotskyanism here, hmm. so there's no such thing, hmm. but it sounds like a kind of sane thing. It sounds like a tactical disagreement. Mm. It's like we basically want the same thing, but mm. we differ on the tactics. But there is an element of contrarianism mm. in there that's coming in. Um, so they took the view that socialist organising around the state was doomed. The only sure path to maintain working class independence from institutions like the Labour Party and the unionism was to um, avoid reformism at all costs. Because of course they're trot they're trots groups, so they are opposed to kind of authoritarian Stalinism already. They yeah. want some kind of, in one manner or other, like democratic control and democratic processes within a party. But at the same time, this the Revolutionary Communist Party didn't want to get involved with the Labour Party because the Labour Party are bourgeois. That would penetrate the working class mm. and make them bourgeois. Yeah. Um, uh, Jenny Turner in the London Review of Books was um, a member, well, was with the RCP for a short period in the 80s. Um, she said, They were dishy and well turned out in that DMs and MA1 jacket, ambient fury of the Thatcher era street fighting way. This, I'm sorry to say, had a lot to do with why I used to buy their paper and once went to a meeting of their women's chapter in Edinburgh at which we were told that condoms were Thatcherite and we ought to celebrate scientific achievement by going on the pill. The meetings were horrendous, bossy, and full of buzzwords run by people pretending they didn't know each other. Because <laughs> you could pretend you're a mass organisation by yeah. saying, these people just came in off the street, not, it's the same 30 people who are here every month. Yeah. <laughs> um, they stood for Parliament in 1987 as a red front, mm -hmm. with a couple of other smaller groups. Um, their official propaganda in their journal, Confrontation, boldly proclaimed that the RCP was just about to replace the Labour Party. They all lost their deposits. <laughs> um, sometimes in the 90s, mm. um, this changed. It might have been around the fall of the Soviet Union, but they lost this kind of approach to an independent mass working class as the subject of history, as the thing that you go to, that you go for politically. Yeah. Um, Frank Freddy started writing things like, uh, for the first time this century, there's no real sense of a working class movement with a distinctive political identity anywhere in the world. Hmm. Anywhere in the world? Hmm. Naxalites? Hmm. Any, anybody? Hmm. South America? Colombia? Hmm. Brazil? No? Can't read foreign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just can't read it. Just, it's all in Spanish. Would you be shocked if I told you that a lot of the people in the RCP were very, very white and middle class? <laughs> <laughs> so by the 90s, they're kind of shifting their tone. Hmm. The working class isn't at the centre of their thought anymore. They argued that between Stalinism and reformism, the working class was not a dynamic force in history and therefore had no political existence. Okay. Uh, they started identifying anti-progress as the key contradiction holding back the forces of history. So they're starting to look at the forces of science and technology as the things needed to push 
society forward because the working class doesn't exist mm. essentially the working class is a lump and mass mm. so what you need to do is you need to push everything forward in order to make it all right make the conditions okay for for revolution and an egalitarian a, a, a liberty like a society of liberty mm. Don Milligan, uh, an academic and a gay activist, um, ran an RCP branch in the 80s and describes his time in these terms. What attracted me about the party was its insistence upon challenging the verities of Labourism, its refusal to abide by the shibboleths that marked the perimeters of left-wing thought. Although I only became aware of this much later, the very thing which I found attractive about the party was precisely the feature that made it capable of attracting deracinated individuals like myself and like the largely middle-class young people with little or no understanding of socialism or of the history of the socialist movement which we recruited. Young RCP comrades, contacts and full members were, by and large, simply not socialists. It took an unconscionable length of time for this to dawn on me and to recognise fully that the party leaders, Frank Ferretti, Michael Fitzpatrick and Mick Hume, were not socialists either. <laughs> um, so the true enemy is now revealed through the 90s and they start focusing on environmentalists. <laughs> they were their big kind of bugbear, along with postmodernism and the kind of the new left. Um, they're viewed as enemies of science, progress and the Enlightenment, all of which the RCP defended in a very uncritical fashion. Other inhibitants to progress were victim culture and the culture of safety, which oh, gave rise God. to risk aversion and moral panics. Big thing with the RCP and living Marxism. They hate moral panics. They use any criticism mm. of them as, oh, this is just another moral panic mm. or a witch hunt or something mm. like that. Um, uh one should pay the least regard, the RCP now argued, to the views of victims or their relatives, whether one was dealing with gun crime, road accidents, Bhopal, BSE, AIDS or whatever, as it only encouraged a culture of fear and caution and so inhibited freedom and progress. Like Bhopal? Yeah. That was the big oil disaster. That was the big uh, pesticide Chemi disaster. Yeah, that was it. Chemical, chemical disaster. Thing, yeah. The worst <laughs> possible nightmare. <laughs> um, progress. Yeah. <laughs> Progress is the worst possible nightmare in all of its forms. <laughs> this chimes with the times as well with Blair getting elected and using state power and putting state power into private hands mm. and kind of becoming slightly more authoritarian, saying he's going to sort out crime by mm. nudges, by little things. And they kind of became very libertarian about the very, very small things. Mm. So Nazis must be allowed to speak wherever Always. and whenever they want on every single outlet every single platform otherwise it's fascism yeah <laughs> yep um <laughs> they also although they deny it now had a a brief time where they argued that uh it was illegitimate for the state to regulate forms of child pornography uh well the free market will regulate it <laughs> yeah yeah um, their big thing early on was biotechnology and like big business. Mm. They thought that any restriction on things like uh, GM crops, mm. um, tobacco, uh, any biotechnology at all, that was uh, a, like a completely unacceptable hindrance to human freedom. Mm. I've read the Wine Up Girl. It seems like, yeah, <laughs> all that kind of stuff is always ends up great <laughs> and could only ever end great. Yeah. I mean, have you ever read a story where biotechnology or some kind of mad scientist 
goes mad and the results are bad. <laughs> I, every mad scientist, uh, Frankenstein, right? <laughs> <laughs> Frankenstein was a utopian thing, much like Thomas More's utopia. His fucking moral panics. They, Frankenstein. <laughs> Mary Shelley was outlying her ideal state of affairs. <laughs> it was a satire. <laughs> it was a satire, but yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, they also extended into. Um, like uh, domestic affairs by saying things like um, child rearing, crime, health. These were areas where citizens were mollycoddled, patronised and made to feel like victims. They were enforced to be victims by the state looking out for them. Mm. Um, uh, They attacked things like homeopathy um, and kind of the the speech codes and political correctness and yeah, things Mm. like that. They should never, like, their attitude was you should ban nothing mm-hmm. and you should allow everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so they started getting quite a lot of donations from large pharmaceutical companies and tobacco companies. Yeah. Um, and they were going to need it. Uh, they had <laughs> renamed their, their group's magazine uh, Living Marxism mm-hmm. in the 80s. In 1997, to kind of update it, uh, they started calling it LM. Because that's cool. Yep. Um, I've never seen that. <clears throat> in 1997, the LM magazine, uh, under Mick Hume, published an article by Thomas Dykeman called The Picture That Fooled the World. It claimed that a frequently published image from the uh, Bosnian War hmm. in 1992, showing a Bosnian Muslim behind barbed wire in a uh, prison camp, hmm. was faked. <clears throat> Uh, Dykeman asserted that the British reporters from ITN, Penny Marshall and Ian Williams, had actually stood inside a compound surrounded by a barbed wire fence and from there filmed their famous pictures and that the Bosnian Muslim's appearance, his gaunt appearance, was due to tuberculosis. Uh, ITN sued them, understandably, (laughs) because it was perilously close to genocide denial. Um, It was quite a cause celebre among more progressive liberals, like... Mm. Doris Lessing, uh, Institute for Contemporary Arts, I think it was uh, Paul Theroux as well, all leapt to their defence because it looked like big, bad, multinational ITN trying to restrict the speech of small 10,000 people <laughs> circulation yeah. rump of a Trotsky's magazine. Yeah. Um, but ITN won in any case and were awarded damages of £375,000, which completely finished the magazine. Hmm. Had to close down. Um, they... This was when they started setting up their front organisations. The, the RCP was done. Hmm. They had no money left. They also didn't have an organ. What they did instead, they took these new libertarian ideas and started founding a load of front organisations. So you've got the... Uh, Freddy reinvented himself as a critic of modern society's low-risk, low-achievement culture, talking about risk avoidance and how human beings should play for high stakes saying there's far too much soft social engineering, by which he means healthy eating propaganda, <laughs> eco-spying, anti-bullying, eco-spying. and so on. And, eco-spying. Uh, keep it, um, I guess um, keeping an eye... Like, it's recycling, I guess. Hmm. It's keeping an eye making sure people recycle. Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, and don't fly tip, oh, for fuck's basically. Sake. Um, he said that, and nowhere near enough intellectually oriented classical and theoretical knowledge by which he means Greek philosophy, Renaissance poetry and the novels of George Eliot. Um, this was when he started uh, hiring himself out as an after dinner speaker, if you might be interested to know, at uh, about, you know, five grand ago. Ooh. Yeah. Um, 
so kind of so far this sounds like the quibbling of like like typical kind of left wing quibbling hmm. um they set up a little site known as spiked online hmm. um dedicated to their ideals of repealing state intervention in every aspect of life um whether it be child porn or smoking ban <laughs> yep uh, criticising laws targeted at paedophiles as counterproductive to rehabilitation and conducive to mob violence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and again, critiquing political correctness, environmentalism and the risk society. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you had, uh, they had the Institute of Ideas along with the Academy of Ideas. Um, one of their members, Claire Fox, um, managed to get into. She's, I think, she's a regular on Moral Maze on Radio Four, and has been for years. Hmm. Um, a lot of them kind of set up their own smaller think tanks. There's, um, hang on, let me have a look here. Um, they mainly went into uh, like scientific pressure groups, hmm. um, kind of working for large corporations, promoting genetically modified food, uh, advancements in cloning, and uh, just full unrestricted access to the human genome. Yeah. Um, the Science Media Center, Sense About Science, Genetic Interest Group, the Progress Educational Trust, and the Scientific Alliance. They actually got a program on Channel 4 in, I think it was 96 or 97, called Against Nature. They got three hours where they interviewed Ferretti and a number of living Marxism members and basically uh, said that environmentalists were responsible for millions of death in, deaths in Africa. Because they had not been, they had not allowed Africa to develop industrially, and therefore could not produce the extra food that they required to sustain the population. So therefore, environmentalism and green groups were responsible for genocide. That's a take. Mm-hmm. Monsanto would save Africa. Is it? <laughs> is it? If a... only you'll let <laughs> Pfizer yeah. cure all of these diseases. Yeah. Yep. Um, they just. They they shit out groups. Hmm. They really do. There's um, I've got a few of them here. There's World Right, which is an educational charity committed to global equality. Their slogan is Ferraris for all. Fantastic. Saying you know everybody, yeah. every nothing. It's like it's the worst possible inversion of um, uh, nothing's too good for the working class. Yeah. And also a slight subversion of fully automated luxury communism. Let's face it. Yeah. Um, you could get all the red and yellow paint. <laughs> I mean, that itself it yeah. will probably doom the planet. Yeah, not the Ferraris, not all of the stuff that they're pumping yeah, earlier, out. They're complaining the about paint. they're complaining about like you know Stalin and five year plans and his over emphasis on production. We are going to lose millions in the paint factories. <laughs> um, there's another. There was another site now defunct. Quite a lot of these sites are defunct, <laughs> but new ones seem to spring up hmm. to replace them. Um, Audacity.org, which was a research company that offered uh, its services to large businesses, agribusinesses and, and pharmaceutical businesses. It argues that society suffers when the polluter is made to pay and is upfront about its antagonism to community groups opposing urban sprawl. Its website state, stated that Audacity is a campaigning company that advocates developing the man-made environment free from the burden of sustainable and communitwaddle. <laughs> if you ever wondered... Where that shitty cockwomble thing came from? Maybe <laughs> maybe it came from here. That's oh my god! One that's still around. How they could say that seriously without going? Someone's gonna like 
caught onto this grift. Oh, um, the, all of these, uh, all of these think tanks produce mm. like an, a never-ending circus of seminars, mm. lectures, talking groups. The other thing they're big on is this: uh, the alt-right thing about uh, debate me, mm. like the power of debate to mm. to shift something. Um, well, at five thousand pound a pop. Yeah. I'll be encouraging people to debate me. <laughs> their main um their main conference uh mm. that goes on now is called the Battle of Ideas. Mm. It's actually going on in October. Um it's been going on for like twelve, fifteen years, something like that. Is it like Evo for debate nets? Uh kind of, yeah. It's 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 marketed as just like an open an open forum for the discussion of ideas. And you look down some of the like uh like titles of some of the talks. Working for the state, public service or gravy train? India's future, slum dogs or millionaires? Oh my god. Choking on growth from yellow peril to green menace. <laughs> now that, I know what you're thinking. Hmm. You're thinking, oh my god, that's racist. Well, no, it's the opposite. What it's saying is that China is polluting so much and is asking China to pollute less hmm. is orientalist anti-development anti-development thinking it's racist racist. because they're Chinese yeah you're the racist you were the racist all along get yourself down to the the battle of ideas (laughs) the racist was in the house all along (laughs) Um, these talks are fully funded by um, you know the usual sort of like Pfizer PricewaterhouseCoopers they have loads of they're proper like they look like proper wonk conferences Mm lanyards and all that kind of stuff they've got a few more like speakers at the battle of ideas like uh dunty's been on there um angela nagel's been there for the last two or three years of course she is which is actually kind of fits fits that they're not i was going through some of the like speakers of from this year and they're not the interesting thing is they've managed to hide who they are enough or they've managed to last long enough mm. that people will just get invited to it and think it's just a, a, a kind of neutral event. Yeah. And maybe maybe that is all that it takes for mm. it to be a neutral event. Mm. Um, they've got like some left wingers there um, and it's 50 quid a pop <laughs> to mm. get in. Mm. But yeah, I don't... There's a lot of the usual suspects. It used to be that you, you used to look down the list and you'd go, oh yeah, I recognise that name. That's Spiked Online. Or that's the the Manifesto Club. That's another one that they have. Hmm. Um, they're like a, a freedom think tank purely devoted to freedom. They love freedom so much that they will bitch and moan about the tiniest restriction in the ability of doing certain things. Every time you bring up any of their thing, like them being annoyed at state intervention, all I think is this angry man smoking outside of a pub. Oh, with yeah. With his hand over his pint so the drizzle doesn't get into it. <laughs> they have, um, they hold loads of events with um, Forrest, the pro smokers group. Oh, I love them. So Anthony Warrell Thompson is there, like, he was their <laughs> spokesman for a while. Isn't he in prison? Is he in prison now? I want to say is he's he, in prison. I'm pretty certain he used Didn't to be. Didn't he like, do something? Smoking at a school. <laughs> Did he do something, or did he just have an affair? Was that it? I can't remember. But um, yeah, Forrest are like they're pretty funny. Mm. Um, they they sometimes get they used to sometimes go on LBC. It's like, but I just love smoking. <laughs> it's 
strikes me that, yeah, LBC probably is the perfect place for that because they mm. don't screen people enough if they've got enough credentials, which a lot of the people in this in this group do. Mm. Mm. Um, they'll just they'll just let them on. Mm-hmm. Um, the Manifesto Club used to um, organise picnics in public places um, and then they would smoke in non-smoking areas and like public, like drink publicly in a non-drinking, non-open can areas. <laughs> images of them just smoking pipes and drinking cans of special brew in a, in a school. Hey, look. <laughs> Calling the teachers fascists. You might think, hey, these freedom likers, they're monsters. <laughs> they're drinking and smoking outside. They're irredeemable, but don't worry, they've got some good things. They also don't want criminal checks done on teachers. <laughs> and they also... <laughs> I looked on their website literally today, and one of the most recent things is a round letter they've sent to London councils appealing them to not put buffer zones around abortion clinics. Oh. Because the right, the right to abortion is sacrosanct, but the right to protest is just as sacrosanct, which is even more incredible considering Frank Ferretti's wife, Anne Ferretti, is the head of the British Pregnancy Advisory Service mm. and has been campaigning for years for abortion to be considered just a medical treatment and not have a huge stigma attached yeah. or be seen as a last resort thing. Again, none of these things in isolation is necessarily the worst thing in the world, yeah. but you kind of put them all together and it's a bit unsettling the yeah. way that they go after th- they do go after things like an old trot group hmm. like the way that they choose their targets they're not concerned about any kind of larger no like theoretical underpinning of why you might not want protesters screaming at women going into an abortion clinic yeah but no there's a principle there there's a rigid adherence to a particular text or a particular line and that will be adhered to it's democratic centralism not letting those bible bashers show pictures of fetuses to women going into an abortion clinic mm-hmm. that there fascism <laughs> and then i poke put down my pipe <laughs> and get asked to leave the school <laughs> get asked to leave the mcdonald's where i'm giving a talk <laughs> I just want to get to the napkins. Please, sir. Please. We've asked you this. We gave we asked the police for an ASBO. They said it was an uncontrol it was a horrible impediment to my freedom. Just debate me, you knave, while holding a holding a pipe standing next to the sauce bit in the McDonald's. Screaming as the security take you out take you out. Debate me! <laughs> just like Stalin. So Ultimately, like that's the history of living Marxism, and occasionally you'll get kind of a a, a feeling about it, like it's a, a cult or like it's a secret. Like people, like George Monbiot did a lot of stuff on them back when they really were kind of a tight knit group, mm. um, like back in the early two thousands. But they have carried through a kind of a, a constant philosophical like attitude towards things, and the. Level to which all of them are the same. So people who would have been associated with this group would be people like um, Mick Hume and Brendan O'Neill, who who did uh, Spiked Online. Um, Claire Fox. um, Kemal Malik, I think, was another one. Frank Ferretti. um, And his son is now um, commissioning editor of the Daily Mail, which was something I noticed the other day as well, which is Mm. a bizarre thing. Um, Like... 
I've always had the question of who they are really, because I refuse to believe that they're actually just left-wing accelerationists who mm. are lying <laughs> to try and like push capitalism to the edge. Yeah. I think you could probably maybe say that in like 2004, mm. when I kind of first became aware of them. You can't really say that in 2018. No. They've been going for way too long. Grifters. To a certain extent, I mean, being a corporate sock puppet really does really does help them there's, yeah, there's, there's something that Claire Fox said when she was interviewed about being in, in the Revolutionary Communist Party she said uh, oh why would I set up the Institute of Ideas I could make like for money you know why would I just do it for the corporate donations I could make more money as a consultant and the question begs is like you are a consultant <laughs> Yeah, you are literally doing PR for yeah. the companies that pay you that's kind of what a PR consultant does yeah um you just got institute in front of your name. <laughs> they're never, despite their emphasis on debate, they're never in the positions they're in because of the strength of their arguments. Mm. They're in the positions they're in because they're well funded and kind of embedded in various important bits of the media where they, which they have constant access to. Mm. It's why they're on things because they're in the Rolodex. Mm. You know, um, their legacy has been kind of weird as well thinking about it a lot of the early alt-right stuff when they started talking about things like um uh the themes of being like constrained mm. uh themes of individual freedom like personal toughness so mm. like the snowflake thing those are things that living marxism people were talking about like a decade ago but yeah. probably more 15 20 years ago now mm. um and they also they pioneered the thing of like, oh, you're saying we're right wing. Actually, we're more left than you are mm. because we recognise the power that people have to change their lives. Mm. But only individuals, never collectively. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's and their their positions are all like they've never. There's nothing they haven't opposed. There's mm. no single element of like harm reduction or protection from the ravages of capitalism that they haven't come out and said not just isn't a practical aim yeah. but is actually a moral evil yeah they have always had that thing and like people will talk about them as a conspiracy but there is like one last bit from uh from the london review of books article on them um there is there such a thing as an lm network that depends in the sense that there's a loose, informal group of people, some of whom have known each other for a long time, some of whom have become involved more recently, some of whom share memories of passionate commitment to a tiny, democratic centralist organisation, some of whom don't, all of whom seem to roughly agree with each other on a rather shallow and repetitive libertarian agenda, and to display varying degrees of left-liberal baiting enthusiasm for all the big, scary corporate technologies, especially in those involving genetic manipulation, petrochemicals, non-sustainable power generation, and human cells. Hmm. I find it weird that like, I can't link their... You can't really link them together anymore, I don't think, which mm. is a mistake that some people occasionally go after Frank Ferretti on, on Twitter and say, oh, the, you're LM group. Mm. And it's like, he's a rich 60-year-old academic. Mm. He has constant think tank appearances. He gets on the media well enough. He releases books every two years with things like, like he'll take what's happening and just say the worst possible take on it. <laughs> so it's like, what's the riskiest thing you can do? You know, like... Yeah free speech on campuses or mm. parents don't stop their children like 
parents shouldn't stop their children from running out into the roads because they'll learn a valuable lesson or something like that. Yeah. Well, the second child definitely will. <laughs> After they see their older brother explode in front of a lorry. <laughs> you can see like their pattern in all of the alt-right stuff about free speech. Yeah. Nonsensical defences of positions on issues that are either heavily exaggerated or falsified to provide an answer to a question no one asked. Mm-hmm. No one really asked whether buffer zones outside abortion clinics were a bad thing. People who are protesting there want abortion gone. Hmm. They don't just want the situation of their opposition to abortion, reg- well, regulated, basically. Like yeah. They don't want less regulation on no. their opposition to bo- abortion. No. So it's like a weirdly empty libertarianism. Mm-hmm. It's, there's, there's no... You don't get the sense from any of their writings, even now, that there's anything important that they stand for. All they stand for is stances, which hmm. kind of matches up with their early, that earlier description of them as like the cool Trotskyists. Yeah. Like they were the dynamic ones. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It just matters that you're doing something and that you're hmm. moving. Hmm. It's kind, I think it's kind of a mistake to ask whether like the Living Marxism Network are like a, a coherent unit or not because like most of the right has kind of turned into the that kind yeah. of turned into that mode if they if they're tied by anything it's that philosophy that doesn't have anything in it that mm. is just a series of stances yeah you know kind of jokey when they're caught but otherwise like repetitive like I said, repetitive deadly serious treatises on you know why i should be allowed to smoke into my baby's face mm. It's good for the baby and good for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Jonathan Pye, like, he's there. Andrew Doyle, one of the writers on uh, Jonathan Pye, hmm. um, is a spiked online guy. Again, the extent to which he's an LM guy, hmm. I don't know, but he has that same bad faith. Yeah. Like, f- f- he's full of free speech cliches. A load of bad faith contrarianism. Well, yeah, Whenever like he's the jerk chicken thing, he, he's well the jerk rice. Oh, thing. he came he's out about the jerk, jerk rice. Thing. He said it's jerk, you know complaining about people hmm. eating jerk chicken. Hmm. And it's like no, that didn't happen. But yeah, well, I'm Is looking forward exactly to seeing your pattern? four minute video of you shouting about it. Hmm. It's kind of like I haven't watched a Jonathan Pye video in fucking ages because they've stopped. I don't know whether they're on Facebook or whether I just don't follow anyone YouTube. who shares them anymore. Because yeah. I saw a few of them on Facebook. And they were like, the first time it was like, <laughs> oh yeah, he's like a, he's like a proper new mat, a newsman. But then he's breaking all the rules mm-hmm. by taking his fucking tie off mm-hmm. and shouting. They're not supposed to shout, you know. <laughs> Are they not? No. They're supposed to hush, hushedly whisper <laughs> lovely things into your ears <laughs> with authority. Yeah. But don't you know, authority comes from shouting and clubbing your viewer over the head <laughs> with your viewpoint and not in any way talking to them, but talking at them. Mm-hmm. And that's like living Marxism. They yeah. talk at people. But it's the perfect voice box. It's the perfect thing for them. Yeah. Even if they're not directly linked to living Marxism, they've, it's the, the evolution of it. Yeah. Everybody is that now. Hmm. You know, it, Breitbart's that. Rebel Media's that. Uh, who else? Daily Mail's that. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's right-wing media now. Okay, that's it, us for this week. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast. You can follow me at BM Bergamo and follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.